Have you ever had a thing where, where you, a game you played, they changed the rules over time on how to play it? I've been reading about how in the major leagues, baseball, they've added some different rules this, this last year. And I don't follow baseball well enough. I, I don't watch it too much on TV. But it sounds like they, they added a pitcher's clock. They, they wanted to hurry the game along. That, that baseball kind of was getting too slow. Games are taking too long. And so they wanted to make sure the pitchers couldn't just delay as much as they, they used to. And I would love to hear if we have some baseball watchers, if, if those changes were good um, or not. But even so, at its core, it's still basically the same game that I played when I did Little League long, long ago, right? It's still, the rules are pretty much the same. You know, they might add some tweaks here and there. Oh, I think they also made the bases larger so that it can tell if someone's safe or out. But imagine they said, hey, no one's watching baseball. We need to really jazz it up. So let's create a moat that people have to jump over between first and second base. And let's put in live alligators and let's see what happens. You know, let's say they said, you know, you got to, um, you could tackle you know, and it, you know, if someone's running to the base between second and third base, you could tackle them if they're, you know, like, what if they completely changed the rules so that it was a totally different game? Um, that's what it feels like when it comes to the issue of sex, dating, and marriage for at least people of, of my age. So for my teenage years until more recent times, the rules have changed regarding life, marriage, sex, everything. Uh, The basic rules kind of that I grew up with could be exemplified with this little rhyme. Maybe you were taught it. First comes love, (laughs) then comes marriage, then comes baby in a... Exactly. Um, Do they even teach that anymore? So the idea was that you would wait to get sexually active until you were married and you would hold off on that. And then when you got married, you had babies and you stayed faithful for a lifetime. That, that, now I'm not saying everyone kept those rules. There's plenty of examples and times when people broke the rules, but they all knew they were breaking the rules when they did it. They all kind of knew that this was the gist of, of what God had kind of set apart for it. And that, that we should try to, to heed to those. And society kind of agreed. It's what we sort of taught our kids. And um, my, my boss, when I first was on Young Life staff, name is Tom Hammond. And I remember we were talking about this in the 90s. And, and he said, when he was a kid growing up in the 50s and 60s, all three voices in his life, which would be his parents, his church, and the school slash society in general, culture in general, they all three agreed on, on the basic rules that, that he should not, you know, you should not be sleeping around until you got married. And the only thing that kept his pagan little heart from just going wild was the fact that all three voices were in agreement in, in telling him what to do. I, in my years of ministry, I just would say I've seen the rules shift over time for what the culture, what our society says is you should be doing. So 
in the 80s. Let me know, did you watch any of these shows? For those of my age, The Cosby Show. Now, we know there's more going on with Cosby than we want to talk about today. Um, the Cosby Show, Family Ties, Growing Pain. Like, these are these family shows, kids with parents. Like, these were some of the most popular TV shows in the 80s. What were they replaced with? Seinfeld, Friends, Sex in the City. These are the most popular shows in the 90s going forward, right? You went from family with kids, kind of baby in a baby carriage kind of shows, to single people living together and where, where basically there were no rules on, on who you slept with. Or at least they weren't, you know, it, it's not just that they thought they were breaking the rules, they just, you know, the rules were different for them. Um, in fact, the only rule that seemed to survive uh, that in that is consent. And even today, if you go to a college, the one rule is that it has to be consenting adults who are engaging in sexual activity. Otherwise, pretty much anything. Oh, there, there was kind of the rule of if you're in a committed relationship, you shouldn't cheat on them. And so there, there was that a little bit, but even that would get broken pretty easily. Um, and you could kind of see the needle kept moving on what our culture said was acceptable or not acceptable uh, to include, I'm going to go into it, group activity, or um, there's a movie called The Hall Pass where you don't actually, you get freedom to, to stray from your spouse for a, for a weekend. And, and so... So things kept moving. And until you get to, to universities, they actually literally have a thing called Sex Week um, where they're teaching college kids all their options. And it's not just that. Um, again, it's, it's like the rules have changed. This shift has been disorienting for Christians. I'd say it took place over a generation and it has caught older Christians off guard. One reason is we got used to the idea that the culture would uphold the same standards that we felt the Lord was calling us to, right? That, that we, we got used to the three voices all being the same, and that seemed normal to us, right? The shift that now we are advocating one Christian, the Christian ethical standard regarding sex is one thing, and the world standards, that those are different, that, that was disorienting. Um, now, Christians have always advocated the path of grace and forgiveness, that, that Christianity does not advocate like harsh enforcement of the rules and punishment. Um, in fact, I, I, you know, we've always had ministries to things like, uh, we talk about young lives here, the ministry to teen moms, or other things where, where we, we know people make decisions. And we want to all... Christianity has always offered a path of grace. But what standard do we strive towards? What standard do we teach to our kids? And it has become a barrier for belief. That's why I have this picture at the fence. Right? It means when I, this morning, am teaching on what the scriptures clearly say about sex and marriage, I am teaching something different than what many people have heard from the culture. And they're like, why are you church people saying this? This does not match up 
with what I've learned. It, it makes it hard, harder at least, for young people to, to say yes to Christianity because they know they're saying yes to something that's different from what they maybe have heard in their culture. For those who didn't grow up in church, the Christian ethical standard on sex just seems extreme. So let's look at it. This is a long introduction to make a certain point that in our passage from 1 Corinthians, it is calling on believers to refrain from, even flee from, sexual immorality. And, and what I want to do is get you to think about something. We might have this idea that when, when Paul is writing this, and Paul the Apostles wrote this to the church in Corinth, that when he was writing this, he was, he was upholding the same rules that his society was following. But no, not really. Um, at least not quite. And here's where you got to make a distinction uh, in the Bible about where the story is at. In the New Testament, in the, the, the Gospels where it's among the Jews, yes, they already had the standard of teaching of, of, of God's design for marriage because in the, the, the Jewish people had grown up learning God's design for marriage and sex, that it would just be one, one wife. And so they, they did have high standards, the, the similar standards for Christian ethics, regard, or, uh, ethics regarding sex and that. And so if you see in the Gospels where, where there was the woman caught in adultery and they were about ready to stone her, in fact, they were, they were pretty severe in upholding those standards, Jesus actually intervened to save this woman's life who was caught in the act of adultery and, and stopped them from stoning her. But at the same time, what did Jesus say to her? go in and sin no more. He wasn't changing the standard, but he was talking about how do we respond to people who've broken the standard. But that's in the Jewish people. Corinth is not a Jewish city. Corinth was in Greece. And as the gospel spread out of what we call the Holy Land into the rest of the Roman Empire of these Greek and Roman cities, what Paul was advocating was very different from how they they thought of what the rules should be. Um, Corinth is, like I said, a Greek city. And in fact, the Greek and Roman culture would not be too different from America today. Lots of different views as we have in America today. Uh, the, the one difference is the rules are different for men and women. Men could kind of do what they want. Here's, let me read a quote. I've, I've shared this before. This is from Demosthenes, a Greek Greek writer, he says, we have mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our needs, and wives to bear legitimate children. So the men, you know, could do what they want. The women were expected to, because those children wouldn't be legitimate if they, if they strayed. Um, moreover, culture-wide, so Corinth especially, they had a temple to Aphrodite that employed 1,000 temple prostitutes. They built that into the culture. And so when Paul is saying, you know, do not unite yourself to a prostitute, he's writing to people that that was a, a normal part of life in their, their city. I, I learned something this week. I was listening to a podcast on a completely different subject. And they said it, there was a verb called Corinthianize based on the city. And it meant effectively what, what we, we say when we talk about going to Las Vegas. 
right? So, so the verb that, that Corinth had a, Corinth is one of the major cities in the Roman Empire, and it had a reputation. So, so when Paul says flee from sexual immorality, he's not writing to people who would have learned that in Sunday school. He's writing that to people who would have heard a very different thing from the culture. And what he's saying is, when you say yes to Jesus, when you become a disciple of, of Christ, your life and your standards of how you live should follow that of God's kingdom, not the ways of the Hellenistic culture. And so what does he say? Flee from sexual immorality. The word is porneia, which just means sexual immorality. We get pornography from it. And it's not one of our passages, but it's on the sheet, my handout. It defines what that is in a few verses later. So let me find that real quick. Um, so let me read verses 9 to 11 where it defines things that they're supposed to flee from. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So it lists all the things that do not fit in the kingdom of God that maybe was acceptable within society. Three of them have to do with sexual immorality. So one is just simply sexually immoral, which would have meant sleeping outside, sleeping with someone outside of marriage, going to the temple prostitute, or just any sex before you're married. Um, and then it says adulterers, which are those who are married who then cheat on their spouse. So that's two. And then the third one is nor men who practice homosexuality. So that also does not fit with the way things are called to operate within the kingdom of God. I will note that, note how it says practice. This is about actions being taken. It is not about what we often talk about today when, when we say someone is, uh, has attractions to those of the same sex. The Bible does not contempt, condemn anyone for their temptations or for their attractions. But it does speak about how we are called to, to, to practice um, a holy lifestyle rather than giving in to those temptations or desires that are built within us. So, so that's the definition of what sexual immorality is like. And I'll note one more thing. It's in verse 11. This is a great verse. And he says, and that's what some of you were. Right? He's writing to people who who have blown it in these areas. He's writing to people who have practiced all three of these kinds of sin, as well as the other sins. Yeah, I know. I know before you knew Christ, that's what some of you were, and maybe you still are tempted to be. But remember this. It says you were washed, you were sanctified, which means you're made holy, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that what we celebrate when we are baptized, how, how we're washed and forgiven of our sins, and we're made into sons and daughters of God. He says, yeah, I know. I know that's, that's, that's what you were, but, but you've been changed because you've encountered the living Christ, and you now want to follow him. So let me get back to my spot. So when it, it says now in our larger verse that, that um, we've already read, says flee from sexual morality, it gives three reasons to do that. 
One is, sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. The intimacy of sex is powerful. And when we treat it as a, a plaything, that we could do whatever we want, it does damage. God bounded sex within the relationship of a marriage where a husband and wife commit to, to themselves to each other because he knows how powerful that act is. It's powerful enough to create new life, to, to bring a baby into being, but it's also powerful in a, in a relational, uh, in our inner being. And I, I'm sure there are many here who've been hurt because of, of brokenness in this arena. And God does not want that for us. He wants what is good for us. So he says, do not practice this in this area. Flee from sexual immorality. The second reason it gives, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. It says, do you not know that your, your, your body is a dwelling place for the very Spirit of God? It, it says, it's like you're a, a temple, or it's not the same word as temple, in the one in Jerusalem, but it's like a shrine, right? Because God's Spirit lives within us. When we, that's the other thing baptism symbolizes, when we say yes to Jesus, we are baptized into Christ. It says the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. And he brings his holiness into our life. And so we need to operate our lives in light of God's holiness. And the third reason is related. It says your body is not your own because you were bought with the price if there's something that goes against the way the people of the world think, right? Your body is not your own. What do you mean? It's my body. I could do whatever I want with it. That's, that is what the world shouts. But for we who said yes to Jesus, it's not true. Because he gave up his body on a cross. He gave up his blood shed on a cross to bring us into relationship with God. It means we were bought. And now we belong to him. And so... So what does that mean? We're called to glorify God with how we act within our body. What we do with our body matters to God. There's a, um, a book I've mentioned before by Rebecca McLaughlin. And, and I would, I know we have some teenagers here. I'll, I'll tell you now, if, if any of you want this, I will buy you this book. I think it's, it's great. It's called 10 Questions Every teen should ask an answer about Christianity. And she has a chapter that's addressing this very issue. And her, the illustration she used, I think, is just, is just great. So she's British. Rebecca McLaughlin's the one who wrote the book. And so she, but she married an American, and she learned about campfires. Right? We do campfires here in, here in the U.S. And if we go camping, and aren't they? I, I heard an amen. Yeah. I love, I love sitting around the fire, making hot dogs, s'mores, whatever. Um, and, and so she talked about learning how great that is. But a campfire is good because it's in a contained pit, right? You, you, you put stones or whatever. I, I have a metal ring that, that we do for our campfires. But, what, but it's not so good if you make a campfire in the middle of your living room, right? Campfires have a place. She says that's, that's what sex is about. Sex has a place, God gave it a place because it's a good thing, but it, it, it's, it's meant to be there for a reason. And here's what she writes, and it's a long, long quote, but I thought this is worth it. In fact, I, I added this this morning because I, I like, this, is, this says it so well. And so remember, this is, aimed, this is written to teenagers, so 
take note of that. It says, as we grow up, our bodies and our hearts can pull us towards others in powerful ways. The films and songs we enjoy often suggest that we should try out sex with different people to find out which person suits us best, like trying on different clothes until you find the perfect fit. But experts have interviewed thousands of people to find out whether having lots of sexual relationships has made them happy, and it turns out that, in general, it doesn't. A loving marriage tends to make both men and women happier. But having sexual relationships with lots of different people tends to make us less happy. Like eating too much candy, it might feel good in the moment, but the after effects can be miserable. God created sex to go with deep, lifelong commitment. And researchers have found that having sex with just one person consistently does correlate with happiness. But when we pull sex and commitment apart, it hurts. So sociologists are discovering that what the Bible says, it says for a reason. Originally, when I, I kind of had mapped out the sermon series on, on men and women and marriage, I planned to just do chapter 7, because that talks about different questions about marriage. I realized as I did that, it assumes all the material in chapter 6. So I, I kind of felt like I had to step back and cover, because otherwise what it says in chapter 7 wouldn't make sense. So what, what Paul says in verse 7, 1, it says he's giving them answers concerning the matters about which you wrote. So apparently the Corinthian believers wrote to Paul asking him these various questions having to do with marriage and such. And so we, we don't actually know what the questions are, so it's kind of, it'd be kind of interesting to try to guess. What did they actually ask verse on, based on the answer that, that Paul gave? It's kind of like when you're listening to someone on a phone conversation, and you hear their answer, and you're like, what did they ask you to get you to, to say what you just said? So here, here's the answers that Paul gives about these questions. And, and the first, first one... says, now concerning the manners you wrote about, it's, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay? So Paul is saying that singleness, apart from marriage, can actually be a good thing. Now, Paul's making the assumption, right, that singleness means you're, you're staying away from, from marriage, in, or you're staying away from, uh, if you're not getting married, that means you are going to follow the, the law, the called a chastity that the Bible upholds. Later, because the whole of chapter 7 is answering these same questions, later Paul explains why. He says, he says for a married couple, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. So singleness is a good option because you can devote yourself more to the service of the kingdom of God, more to following what God says and to living for the Lord. Um, so it's a good option. It's, it's, uh, and then in verse 2, he says, singleness is a good option, but, and this is kind of, but 
it's not for everyone. In fact, it's probably not right for a lot of people because because of the sec- the temptation to sexual immorality. Note how he says, um, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So you're, the, he's ruling out the option, well, I won't get married, but I'll just sort of sleep around and all that because, no, if, if you're going to stay single, you've got to stay devoted to Christ. So if you can't withhold, if you can't go against that temptation, then it's better to, to have a wife or for a woman to have a husband. It is hard to live in a sex-drenched culture and not be, tempting, not be tempted. Do we not see sex, sex, sexual images, sexual temptations everywhere we go? I think it's one of the bane of our modern age. I think the amount of, of damage um, that, that is being done in young people as they have to deal with the issue of pornography that's more in their face than it ever was. And I think we're going to see over time that that is that reality. And, and again, I would say if you're a young person, I know everyone else. I know many others are, are watching that stuff. I would, I would exhort you, do not click on those sites. Stay away. It will do damage to, to the way we see men and women. It will do damage in our inner being in a way. It's not that God can't forgive you for it. It's not that you're dirty or bad or God doesn't want you around. It's that God wants you to, to, to learn to, to see people, to see men and women, and to see potential future sexual partners in the right way. So he says, don't, don't go there. And then in verses 3 to 5, he asks the question, what should married couples be doing? Two-letter answer, it. Right? He's, you know, he uses these fancy words, conjugal rights. Right? The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So, yeah, it set. We call, it's sometimes called the act of marriage, right? Yes, couples should be having sex. Sex is a good thing. Why does he even need to ask? Why did they ask this question? We'll realize in the Corinthian culture, I talked about kind of the hedonism, the, you know, do whatever you want in those regards aspect. There was another whole stream of thinking in, in the Greek Hellenistic culture and that of extreme asceticism. It's this idea that the, that the flesh is bad. And anything you do in the body, the only thing that is good is spirit. This is like stuff that's derived off of Plato and all the philosophers. So there were some who said any kind of, of sex, whether you're married or not, is bad. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true. Sex is good. It was designed and created by God. And, and it can be enjoyed by married couples. And so, so you... you shouldn't withhold from each other this thing that could potentially bring you together, the, the intimacy. Um, Paul is saying the campfire thing is a good thing as long as it's in the fire circle pit. So the thing is, we need to be a bit careful with this passage, right? Because, I, I mean, I've been asked about this by, by people who are not church people, and they say, does this mean a, a wife can never say no to her husband? No. Does this mean uh, uh, 
you know, a spouse, a husband can just demand and, and the wife just doesn't know. It does not mean that at all. Um, a, wife, a spouse can say, I'm not in the mood tonight. Um, it does mean that there's no right to demand or compel in any way given to the husband. What he's talking about, though, is you should not use withholding sex as a weapon in a relationship. It's not something you should hold over as a way to get back at someone. And he gives the reminder that in husbands and wife, they become one flesh together. That the act of marriage is a part of marriage, that you are united to your spouse in love. And that's, and, and that's part of what it's, it's meant to be about. And then he says, I want you to note something very careful. Paul is very careful to clarify the mutuality of this. He says something that would have been very radical to the, the ears of his Greek listeners. It, it says, um, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, the husband does. Well, that, the Greeks would have agreed with that, right? The husband has, you know, he, um, but likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. So the mutuality, they both, because they're in a one flesh relationship, they both have a say in this. Compare that to what Plutarch said. He was a Roman writer in this very same time frame of Paul, the very, very similar lifetime. It says, Plutarch writes, and control ought to be exercised by the man over the woman, not as the owner has control of a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body. Oh my gosh, what's up with that? Like, that's just weird. Like, the man controls his wife as the soul controls the body. That's the Greek answer. Paul says it's mutual. Verses 6 to 9, he, he, he advocates uh, probably answering another question, um, but he's careful to clarify that he's not give it, giving this as a command He's giving it as a possibility. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul says singleness is a good option for those who feel like they can do it. He says, I wish all the were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What's he saying? Paul was unmarried. And Paul, because he was unmarried, was able to be absolutely devoted to the service and work of the kingdom. And if you have that gift from God and you can, you could direct all your energy and attention to serving God and that God has given you that gift and you don't need marriage, then go for it. Right? And it says, Paul says, I wish everyone could be like that. That'd be great. Um, in a way, but he's, but he says, that's not a command. You're free to, to make these choices as God leads you. So he says to the unmarried and the widows, you know, to those who've, um, the widows including those who were married, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise control, they should marry. But it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is pointing to the campfire, right? Campfire is good. It's got to be in the circle. If, 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 try, if staying unmarried would lead you to, to give into temptation, then seek out someone to be married to. And that's a good thing as well. It, in other words, it's not a command. It's a free choice. Go as God leads you. Each person will be different. I think I had a, a quote on this. Uh, so, just so you know, 
what Paul's doing here is I think he's balancing something that Christianity, Judaism, really religion in general has tended to be pro-marriage, pro-children. Um, and so he's saying that singleness is an option and that single adults have a very valid place within the kingdom. But he's not in any way denigrating the idea of getting married. In fact, getting married is a good thing. Can I, can I give you the statistics on this? It says the share of adults ages 25 to 54 who are currently married fell from 67% in 1990 to 53% in 2019, while the share of cohabiting more than doubled over that same time period. And the share of those who've never been married has also grown from 17% to 33%. Saying that fewer and fewer people are bothering to get married, the, the rules of society have changed, and more are choosing just to, to cohabit rather than to take the, the path of marriage and children and, and raising a family as best we can following the Lord. I, I know one of the arguments put out there, well, uh, there's overpopulation and we're destroying our climate. I don't think we actually need to worry about overpopulation. The numbers are looking more and more as if we're going to deal with underpopulation sooner than that. In some countries, the replacement rate for, for, for childbirth is going to be devastating, including the U.S., to where we're going to find a lot of, lot of old people hoping that Social Security will pay for their benefits and not enough young people working to pay those benefits. And so uh, that's kind of a side note that comes to this. All this to say is marriage is good, singleness is good, each to own has his own gift from God. Verses 10 to 11 deal with the question of divorce. It says, to the married I give this charge, I, not I, but the Lord. So this is a command. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So this is talking about what if there are struggles in the marriage? It says, in general, they shouldn't separate, right? They should live together. But what if there's a particular struggle, and for a time, Paul acknowledges, you know, there might be a time, a season, where a wife would actually separate from her husband um, for some reason. But it says to go, go on from there, but she should not then, like, flip open her phone and go on a dating app and say, all right, let's find someone new. It says this temporary, this temporary um, separation could, could be to, to, to try to seek reconciliation within the marriage, to try to seek to heal the marriage. We were talking about this in Sunday school, and, and, and someone shared, like, they knew people who, who had these kind of struggles. And then after working and striving together, they were able to restore the marriage and have a happy marriage, and I think they said they go on cruises now all the time, right? That sounds like a good, good deal. Um, so don't seek divorce. Seek to find reconciliation within the marriage. Um, and then, but then that leads to a question. What if one partner decides to leave? Or what if you are married to an unbeliever? And you can count this if you're married to someone who is a, a follower committed to Christ and married to someone who is, versus someone who maybe has a generic belief in God, but they don't want to follow Christ. They don't know Christ. You know, you think based on what Paul says, if it's God's desire, you know, that we have a fellow 
a believer as a spouse, does, or should, maybe they ask, should, should we divorce our unbelieving spouse and find a Christian partner? Is that what God wants? And Paul says, no. No. And l- l- let me give you three things it talks about to this issue. What if you're married to an unbeliever? One is, um, if you are unmarried uh, and you desire to be married eventually or together, seek a spouse who's in the same spiritual page as you are. Seek a spouse. If you are a follower of Christ, you will, your marriage will be better, your life will be better if you are both committed to following Christ together. You both are following in the same, same direction. If, if you are following Christ and they, they're following after something else, it's going to lead to challenges. So that's the first thing. If you are already married, do not walk away from the marriage if your spouse will stick with you. It says if your spouse is cons- cons- willing to be married to you, um, you know, don't walk away from it. Stay with them. Who but knows how God might use that marriage in the life of your spouse? Who but knows what the future is? Um, now, Paul says, how do you know if you will save your husband or wife? You don't. You, it's, it's not... It's not something that you can count on. How do you know if you'd be able to leave your spouse to a saving relationship with Christ? We don't know. But if, uh, um, and if they don't, so the third part then, number three is, if they don't want to put up with their Christian faith and they decide to walk away, you are not bound to them. Notice in verse 15, it says, literally, you are not enslaved to them. So then you are set free. Does that mean you can marry again? Well, if you are not bound to someone, I think so. If you are not bound or enslaved, then you're, you're in the same position as the widow, whom Paul, just a few verses other said, the widow is free to marry or not marry. But that is a debatable topic among, among Christians. But um, I think that's what this is teaching. So those are the, the, the three things. If you're unmarried, seek a Christian marriage. Someone who's on the same spiritual page. If you are married and they'll, they're, can, they're willing to stick with you, don't walk away from them. But if, and then third, if they walk away from the marriage, you are not bound to them. You are then set free. But it's verse 14. This is just an intriguing little verse. And, and we need to think about it. So here, here's what it says. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, I, there's no quite other passage that says something like this. So, so whenever something is only taught in one place, you've got to be a little careful on how you interpret it. And, and I don't want to over-interpret it, but I'm trying to think, what does this mean? So we know it means... Uh, because he says it right after this, that, that they will, being made holy is not the same thing as being saved into eternal life. He says, how do you know if your um, husband or wife is going to be saved? So you don't. So it's not about that. But what way are they made holy? Well, I wonder if it's talking about a provisional holiness that allows maybe an unbelieving spouse to participate in the things of church, or even just being around a believer who has the Holy Spirit, in a sense, has an impact on them. 
And I, I would argue, and it also even talks about your children, this is why I think it's okay if your unbelieving spouse or if your children, before they're the age of belief, participate in the things of church. Because I think they have this kind of, this provisional holiness, in a sense, until they're of the age when they're ready to follow themselves. Now, that's a bit speculative, but that's when I argued a few weeks back when it, about taking the Lord's Supper. This is why I think it's okay if children take the, whole, the Lord's Supper, even before if they fully understand what it is. Because there's some way, mysterious way, that God makes them holy and ready for it, um, even when they're too young of age. There's different agreements on this, so don't make too much of it. But that's how I take this passage. All right, so with that little aside, answering these questions, I can imagine three responses to what I shared about today in general. Three responses to the, the Christian sexual ethic. One of them is to argue. To um, I, I fight, right? You have fight or flight. One of them is to fight. I don't, I don't think we need to be bound by these things to reject the Christian sexual ethic that we've outlined here. I can only ask you this. Do you really think you know better than God on how to live this part of your life? Right? I mean, if God made life, if God designed us, designed sex, designed the things that we're talking about, does he not know the best way for us to, to live life? Do you really want to argue with God? Instead, we are called to repent. To say, Jesus is my Lord, and I will follow him even in this. So there might be some that want to fight, argue with this passage, this idea. There's some who might want to go flight, to run away. To say, I want to follow this, but I just don't know how. Right? This seems too much. I, I don't know how I would do it. Living in the kind of world that we live in, I don't know how I would live up to the Christian sexual ethic. And here the response is, is simple. Trust him. If he calls you to it, he can enable you to live up to it. Right? You trust your life to Jesus Christ, follow where he leads, and, and yes, we will stumble along the way, but trust in him. He will lead you and he will give you the strength to live out what he's called you to do. But then there's a third response. And I would suggest this is the right one. Surrender. You don't fight. It's not fight or flight. It's surrender. Maybe as I'm talking about this, within your heart, you have a desire for holiness. There's something in you that says, I do want to live a life honoring to God. I do want to live a life that brings glory to Jesus Christ. I do want to follow him, and I want to follow him in every area. There's some desire within your heart to be holy. And maybe you've fallen short at different times in your life in the past. Maybe you know you have not lived in holiness. What I want to say to you is what Paul said to the Corinthians. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been made holy because God's spirit has come into your life. We cannot live holy lives. Holiness is given to us when we surrender to the Holy Spirit. There's only one way any of us, we as sinful people, can live a holy life. It's because we invite the Holy Spirit to live 
the life of Christ within us. It's the only way. It's not in our power to live holy lives. But he can live that kind of life within us. He can impart his holiness as we surrender and trust him. Let me close with this verse from Galatians 2. And and it's talking about how Christ lives in us. It says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the body with the Holy Spirit living in me, it's Christ's holiness being lived in me. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to have that kind of impact on our hearts and lives. Let's stand and let's sing our closing song, Build My Life.